Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes depictions of body horror, illness, and domestic violence. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. No artifact deserved to be forgotten, especially the really old ones. Those were Derek's favorite. He loved working in salvage, rescuing beautiful items from obscurity thanks to his keen eye and restorer's imagination. He was overjoyed to be asked to help excavate the mansion known as Hull House after its owners declared bankruptcy. Remnants of the home's 122-year history were strewn about the attic. Derek found a particular joy in building a tidy pile of all the salvageable antiques. Porcelain jugs and plates, old clocks, threadbare petticoats. Evidence of a vibrant past. Someone cleared their throat behind him. He turned, but there was no one there. He called out to the next room, assuming he had competition. Silence. Derek shrugged and went back to work. But then, someone coughed right next to his ear. (coughs) A chipped porcelain plate slipped out of his hands. He managed to catch it before it hit the floor. He exhaled, carefully placing it at the top of the pile. He'd nearly sorted everything when he felt a tug toward the bottom of his jeans. Derek was shocked to see a little boy had appeared at his feet. He had a dirty face, weathered overalls and looked up at Derek with frightened eyes. Derek asked him what was wrong. The reply that came from the boy's mouth was incomprehensible, a lilting and ancient sound. The boy pulled harder at Derek's pant leg and pointed into a dark corner of the attic. Derek shushed him gently and walked over to the corner. He peered around, but he didn't see anything. As he turned to explain to the boy that he was perfectly safe, he felt rough hands grab him from behind. They pulled him into the darkness, their sharp nails ripping through his clothes, digging into his skin. He called for the child to get help, but the boy only smiled with shockingly white, sharp teeth. Then he knocked Derek's priceless pile of antiquities to the ground. Welcome to Haunted Places, a podcast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Jane Addams' Hull House, a mid-19th century mansion, the birthplace of one of the earliest social work organizations in the United States, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted.
After the Great Fire of 1871, the near west side of Chicago became a ghost town. Once the home to opulent mansions of the city's nouveau riche, the severely damaged neighborhood became a haven for both sex workers and newly arrived European immigrants. Italian, German, Jewish, Greek, Polish, and Czech. These neighborhoods had few legal protections and even less social support. The crushing capitalist machine of the Industrial Revolution frequently left the denizens of the near west side broke, sick, and suffering. This is the environment that Illinois heiress Jane Addams decided to spend her life in. Addams was a dedicated supporter of the settlement movement, a group of affluent social reformers who rented property in low-income areas in order to provide refuge for their impoverished neighbors. From political advocacy to trade classes to free meals and daycare, settlement homes existed to fill the gaps left behind by the growing income disparity in the United States. When Adams and her friend Ellen Gate Starr went looking for a suitable property on the near west side in 1889, they discovered Hull House, a palatial two-floor mansion on Halstead Street. The home was named for its original owner, Charles J. Hull, who had entrusted it to his cousin, a social reformer named Helen Culver, after his death. Culver was thrilled to contribute directly to the settlement cause, but when Adams and Starr began to set up operations, they noticed a sense of nervousness amongst their neighbors. When Adams asked what was wrong, they struggled to explain in terms the wealthy heiresses would understand. There was something in the attic, they said. Something that wasn't human. Uliana and Arcadi were relieved to finally find a place they could afford. The house had once belonged to a wealthy family, and while it had lost the trappings of wealth, the foundation was solid. It seemed as good a place as any to live as they fought against Uliana's sickness. Consumption had taken a hold of her. Every hour she felt closer and closer to the doors of the Almighty. But she was strong. If anyone had a fighting chance against the Great White Plague, it was her. They moved their paltry belongings in quickly, and Uliana spent two straight days setting up house. Arcadi tried to encourage her to rest, but she was resolute. She wanted to prove that she had some life left in her bones. She slept soundly at the end of the second day. She woke to the sounds of heavy footsteps coming from the floor above. She could have sworn their landlady had told her no one lived in the attic. But you never knew when a relative might seek a little extra space away from their in-laws in a lesser used part of the building. Still, she was tired, so she grabbed her broom and rapped twice on the ceiling. The footsteps stopped, but she still couldn't rest. As soon as she lay down, a scent tickled her nose. Powder and roses. Growing stronger the more she noticed it, what had started as an almost pleasant aroma quickly grew acrid and musty, like flowers left in a place with very little air. She sniffled, turning her head to the other side of the pillow. The scent only grew stronger. Something sticky squirmed in her throat, 
She coughed, trying to clear her airways. Uliana sat up, spitting into her hand. Small red flecks dotted her palm. She got up from bed and made her way to the bathroom. As she turned the water on, the stench of stale roses faded away. She could breathe clearly again. Uliana washed the blood off her hands and shut off the tap. But the scent returned the minute she entered the bedroom. In the darkness, she saw the gleam of white teeth. Uliana called to Arkady, desperate to wake him. He was up in an instant, but the teeth vanished as soon as he was by her side. Arkady kissed her head and told her she was worrying too much. It wasn't good for her condition. Whatever the cause, the scent was gone. Uliana kissed her husband goodbye as he headed off to his night shift, then returned to her bed. Moments later, a cry of rage cut through the silence. Uliana jumped backwards, the hair in her arms standing on end. The sound had been too close to be their neighbors, and her husband was a soft-spoken man. An unseen stranger was in the room with her, and they weren't happy. She didn't want to sleep. She was scared that whoever was in the house would find her. But eventually, her disease and exhaustion caught up to her. She succumbed to a shallow and unpleasant slumber. She did not stay in the apartment long after she awoke. She knew that Arkady would be working for several more hours, and her isolation made her nervous. She went out to do the shopping just to be around people, then trudged home, fighting the urge to never cross the threshold again. She dropped her keys twice in the hallway of the house, the metal rattling violently in her shaking hands. Uliana listened carefully as she took one small step into the apartment. There was nothing but silence. Then she took another. Then another. Uliana's breath started to even out. She was alone. She placed her belongings on the table and went into the bathroom. She barely recognized the woman in the mirror. Hollow cheeks and sunken eyes stared back. The lack of sleep and consumption carving deep, unpleasant grooves into her face. When she came out, she found a woman in a pale silk dress sitting on her bed. She was beautiful, white powder clinging to her face with a hint of rouge. Her hat was decorated with fresh roses. The woman reached for Uliana, her form flickering like a candle by the drafty window. Uliana backed up into the bathroom, her cry of alarm dissolving into a coughing fit. She searched the sink for a weapon, finally setting her eyes on the empty basin. She hefted it over her head and threw it, watching the object fly through the other woman and shatter against the bedpost. The woman promised Uliana that death would be painless. It was coming for her anyway. <laughs> Uliana tried to respond to the ghost, but her hacking coughs returned. She retched as if her lungs were being torn out. She coughed until her throat was raw, her heart straining in her chest. Her body screamed for air, for an end to her pain. She reached out to steady herself against the wall and slid to the ground. 
when Uliana finally rose to her feet, she felt lighter. The other woman gripped her hand firmly. The two of them turned to stare at Uliana's corpse, the bloody handkerchief covering half her face. For the first time in years, Uliana could breathe fully again. The woman smiled at her, as if to say, See, isn't this better? She told Uliana that it had been so long since she'd had a friend. It was so nice of Uliana to join her. Jane Addams and Ellen Gates star's tenants kept a large water pitcher beside the stairs to the attic. They explained that the pitcher was to be used as a quick means of creating running water, which spirits could not cross. It was an easy defense against the ghost in the attic. More women arrived to live and work as aid workers at Hull House, and the other tenants moved out to make room. It is said, however, that the pitcher remained by the attic stairs until the settlement took over the second floor entirely, a precautionary measure against a ghost that didn't care about the new resident's noble ideals. Up next, the skeptical Jane Addams has her own experience with the supernatural. Now back to the story. Jane Addams was not yet seven years old when she first noticed the income disparity that would grow to characterize her beloved Chicago. When driving through the town of Freeport with her father, she observed the squalid conditions of the neighboring tenements. When her father explained that the workers couldn't afford to live in better places, she told him she would give them a mansion of their own to live in. She got her wish with Hull House. When she moved in, the building had fallen into disrepair, a pale and partially burned shadow of its former grandeur. Jane Addams and Ellen Gates Starr quickly set to work, restoring the mansion so it could best serve the needs of the surrounding immigrant community. It seemed that most of the remnants of the Hull's opulent life had been stripped in the 20 years since the fire, but one supernatural mark of the home's previous history remained. Charles Hull's beloved wife had passed away in the house, in the very room where Jane Addams planned to live. Jane didn't sleep enough. Ellen told her so. Her family told her so. The bags under her eyes told her so. But there was just so much to do. She constantly worried that she was missing an opportunity, letting the visitors and residents of Hull House down. But she had to rest sometime. Eventually, her body insisted, and she would practically collapse into bed, barely getting out of her starched clothes before her face hit to the pillow. She was usually a heavy sleeper, but this time she woke to the rattle and clop of a carriage making its way down Halsted Street. When the hoofbeats faded into the distance, she closed her eyes again, ready to return to her dreams. But then, her eyes snapped open again. Jane couldn't move. The darkness seemed heavy, holding her in place. She told herself to take deep breaths, but even breathing hurt. She tried to close her eyes, but her lids didn't respond. Eyes fixed on the ceiling, 
as strange shapes began to dance in front of them. The shapes were sinister, amorphous, and unsettling. Sometimes human-looking, sometimes not. Gnashing teeth, knives, claws. Jane's body shuddered with primal anxiety. She stared, paralyzed, at the frightening vision for what felt like hours. She tried to call for help, but her body wouldn't respond to anything. Just as she thought she would lose her mind in the cold silence, the quiet was replaced by whispers, hissing, moving, as if something was roving about the room, stepping close to her ear, only to fly away again into the shadows. Jane tried once more to scream, but all that came out was a slight whimper. She tried to move with all her might. Miraculously, and without warning, she was able to do it. She turned her head to the left, finally letting out a sigh of relief. She was free. (coughs) But there was someone in the bed beside her, a decaying form, quivering with rasping breaths and coughs. Jane gasped and pulled away, tumbling out of the bed and onto the floor. Her side hurt where she'd smacked against the hardwood. But full movement had returned to her. She scrambled to her feet to look around. There were no whispers, no dark shapes on the ceiling or in the corner. It was just her room. Another carriage clattered by outside. There were no more frights that night. Jane slept in fits, and she was bleary-eyed the next morning when she came downstairs to cook breakfast for the residents and their visiting neighbors. Mrs. Graviano, a woman who was helping out at the daycare center, asked Jane what was wrong. Never ashamed to ask for help, Jane told the woman the whole story. Mrs. Graviano tutted softly to herself, then turned behind her to call over Mrs. Bear, a small Jewish woman with round brown eyes. Jane repeated the tale, and Mrs. Bear blinked owlishly at her. It was the terrors, she said affably. Jane needn't worry. Sometimes the body and mind did not agree, and the mind made such a stink about it. Just breathe evenly, Mrs. Bear said, and all would be well. Jane was relieved to have a reasonable explanation. Once again, she was learning more from her neighbors than they were learning from her. She was actually excited to go to sleep that night, confident that she had the tools to defend herself. But when the darkness came again, it was different. When she awoke this time, she was able to move her head, but only slightly. She curled her chin toward her chest to bring her gaze down from the ceiling and to the edge of the bed. There was a featureless dark shape there waiting. Jane wasn't sure what to do. It just stood, studying her with a slightly tilted head. But then the head tilted further than it should. Slowly but surely, Jane managed to bring her trembling hand to the lamp. She clicked it on, sure that the light would banish the shadow. The figure was still there its head lolling on a broken neck in front of her. It was a woman, deathly pale. Her dress was blue, almost white, 
shimmering in the soft light. Jane wondered for a moment if this was the same corpse from the night before. But she was awake. She was sure of it. This was no dream. Jane watched the figure intently. She was usually an excellent reader of people, but she had no means of understanding the thing that stood before her. If it meant her harm, she was finished. Jane braced herself for the worst, trying to find refuge in her faith. Then, as if slightly embarrassed, the woman raised her head, snapping her spine back into place. She locked eyes with Jane, her gaze not threatening, only sad, devastated, spent. Jane suddenly recalled something Miss Culver had said in passing. Mr. Hull had never really felt comfortable in the house after the death of his wife in one of the rooms. Jane was no stranger to death. Many of the women she counseled had lost infants or relatives to various wasting diseases, and it was common for the police to find dead drunks in the gutters of the near west side. She and Ellen hoped to change all that. But this woman was beyond helping, even if she was indeed Mrs. Hull. Jane ventured the question gently, trying and failing to keep her voice from shaking. The ghost did not open her mouth to answer, but Jane could have sworn she gave a slight nod. Hardened, Jane gave the spirit the warmest smile she could muster under the circumstances. She asked if she could help Mrs. Hull in any way. The ghost just stared unblinkingly. Jane asked if the spirit wanted to move on. Once again, nothing. Unsure what to do next, Jane stepped forward to call for help. The ghost moved to block her path. Jane's heart nearly stopped at the sudden movement. She found her voice as best she could, treating Mrs. Hull like any other distressed member of the visiting groups to the house. There was no need to worry, Jane reassured her, forcing her voice to stay steady. It was all in hand. They would find a solution together. It was clear to Jane that the spirit did not want her to leave, so she laid back a bit in bed. The ghostly woman floated a bit closer, softening ever so slightly. Jane smiled tightly again, thanking Mrs. Hull for allowing her to get her rest. She turned off the light and closed her eyes, potently aware of the ghost's presence beside her. Now, all she could do was attempt to sleep. Perhaps the spirit meant well and didn't mean to be a bother. Maybe Mrs. Hull even intended to watch over Jane, to keep her safe in a room with darker forces at work. Whatever the true motivations were, Jane never slept alone again. Jane Adams told several people about the ghost of Mrs. Hull. She described her as a woman in white, sad, but ultimately benign. According to her, the pale woman never left the bedroom, so it was easy to keep her away from the more nervous residents of the house. But it's rumored that a pitcher of water was still left on the threshold, just in case. Though she appears disinterested in interfering with the affairs of the living, she is known to watch people closely 
both from her open door and the edge of the bed when guests are sleeping. Coming up, we explore Hull House's most sinister supernatural story, a dark and demonic secret hidden in the attic. Now back to the story. Jane Addams' almost casual accommodation of the ghost of Mrs. Hull cemented her reputation as a force of calm, a problem solver. It is no wonder, then, that the influential reformer would become a legend of her own among Chicago's Italian and Jewish immigrants. The rumors of Hull House's haunted attic persisted in those communities, and the residents soon found themselves having to turn away several visitors a day when they admitted they only wanted to see the attic. The visitors said that they heard that Jane Addams had gone a bit too far in her charity. She had taken in a demon baby confining him to the highest floor of the house. The more the residents denied the assertion, the more powerful it became. Some visitors to the home said that they'd seen the unfortunate child themselves, barely living to tell the tale. Nearly everyone who crossed the threshold of Hull House carried a heaviness about their shoulders. They struggled to meet your eyes the first time. It cost them a great deal to be here asking for help in a world that had given them so little. Sarah was used to coaxing them into the building slowly, using accepting language and approaching with caution. She kept her demeanor as calm and open as she could. The settlement was not charity, she liked to say. It's a home, and we want to welcome you to it. The woman on the other side of the door looked almost feral, young, too young. Her eyes were wide, dashing wildly to the left and the right. Her clothes were torn. Trails of dried blood traced every crease in her skin. Her scalp shone through in different spots of her head, where her hair had been torn out. Had she not been trained by Jane Adams herself, Sarah would have gone straight for the police. Jane had taught her to ask first, so she ventured a hello and a gentle offer of help. But the woman, Lena, didn't want help. She wanted one thing, her child. Sarah asked the woman to come with her into the house. Lena agreed, dragging her snow-covered feet out of the Chicago night and over the threshold. Sarah escorted Lena to the sitting room. She kept a benign smile in place as she led Lena to their daycare center, where a few of the little ones still waited for their parents. The children stared at Lena blankly when she walked into the room. Bewildered, Sarah drew the nervous woman back out into the hall. She demanded an explanation. Was Lena's child supposed to be here? Lena's reply was barely a whisper. She said there was something wrong with her husband. He had once been a prince among men, leaving a trail of good fortune behind him. But struggling to find work had hardened him. He grew callous enjoyed hurting people for sport. Her neighbors had suggested that he'd been possessed. She hadn't believed them. But a thump accompanied the way he walked now. He said he'd been hurt at the factory, but the neighbors thought his feet had become hooves. He stopped going to church with her, convinced that God had abandoned them in their time of need. 
She wanted to ask him who he clung to now for faith, but the hardness in his eyes had scared her. Still, she did as she must. Women must honor their husbands, after all, and she wanted to be a good wife. Where he was coarse, she was soft. Where he was rude, she was kind. It took a toll on her. She wasn't sleeping. They couldn't afford to eat anymore. She'd fainted at work several times. Her boss was starting to dock her pay. Then came the pains. Sharp knives stabbing through her abdomen. They lasted for months. She would wake in the night to the strange feeling of tiny footsteps inside her stomach. Several times it kicked so hard that she thought it would break through the skin. This child forcing itself into the world prematurely. Mercifully, the labor was quick. She'd waited for the cries, but heard a harsh screeching sound instead. When she took him into her arms, his skin felt strange. Her child was covered in orange scales, sharp and warm like coals. His eyes were bright red, and he smelled like smoke. Shadows sprouted from his back. It couldn't be. Wings? Her husband ripped the baby out of her arms. She screamed and protested, but he pushed her away. She never saw her baby again, but she heard whispers from her family members. All children of the devil were brought to Hull House. Sarah had never heard of a devil child being brought into the house, or any child being brought into the house to stay permanently. But she didn't want to contradict Lena. It was clearly very real to her. Lena wanted to see the attic. The whispers said that Hull House kept its demons on the top floor. The young woman stared at the key around Sarah's neck. She whispered that she was prepared to do what she must to reach it. Sarah calmly explained that there were no locks on the third floor and guided Lena slowly up the stairs. The woman overtook her only a floor up, rushing forward, calling for her child. Sarah followed cautiously. She could see large bruises blooming across the back of the woman's neck, the remnants of a strong, cruel grip. Sarah had heard other stories of men who were secretly beasts, women that hid their witches' brooms in closets, children who had been haunted by monsters in disguise. It was a way of putting a veil between them and the horrors they'd seen. Monsters, after all, were easy to understand, easy to kill, if you knew their weakness. Black and white, good and evil, they made a terrifying world make sense. There was no demon baby in the attic, but what Lena might learn up there could be worse. Lena lost her grip on the stairs. Sarah caught her, asking if she was sure she wanted to continue. Lena's dark eyebrows rose, but she was resolute. She gently pushed away from Sarah and continued to ascend the stairs. Sarah opened the door, wincing as it creaked. Moonlight spilled in through the lone window in the attic. The air smelled faintly of mold and ash from an ancient fire. Lena sniffed the air and proclaimed that her son had been there. 
When Sarah turned back, she saw a figure hunched in the corner. She felt her breath catch in her throat. It looked almost human, a curved head and a squat body. Her eyes remained on it as it dwindled back into the shadows. Sarah's heart raced. She couldn't move, eyes fixed on the dark, waiting for that horrible shape to reappear. She slowed her breathing, telling herself to remain calm. She was made of sterner stuff than this. But then, something flew at her face. The two women screamed, dropping to the floor as a dark shape moved over their heads. Something slammed into the window, smashing through the glass and out into the Chicago night. All was quiet again. Sarah listened to the stillness of the night, breathless, relieved but fearful that something would break the silence again. She made her way over to Lena on trembling legs, drawing her to her chest. The woman came to life in her arms, thrashing and sobbing, banging her fists against the wooden floors. Sarah released her, but stayed close, placing a gentle hand on her back. Lena's movements started to still, but she continued screaming. She could not stop herself. Finally, she was quiet. Lena pulled herself up slowly, clutching a closed fist to her chest. At first, Sarah worried that she'd injured herself in some way, but as Lena's fingers slowly parted, Sarah understood. There, in her hand, was a clump of black feathers and glittering orange scales. The story of the Devil Baby of Hull House has several versions to match the various ethnic and demographic groups telling the story. In the Italian version, a cruel husband damages his pregnant wife's portrait of the Virgin Mary, saying he'd prefer to have the devil in the house over a depiction of the Blessed Mother. The couple is then, of course, punished with a horned and constantly cursing child, who they offer to Jane Addams and her staff for safekeeping. In the Jewish version, a man with six daughters tells his pregnant wife that he'd rather have a devil in the house than another little girl. His wish is granted, and the desperate couple takes the child to Hull House. The story appears to derive from old wives' tales brought over from the old world by Hull House's clientele and the early rumors of the potentially haunted attic. There's no substantiation of a disfigured or disabled child being hidden away in the top floor of the settlement house. This didn't stop many citizens of Chicago from knocking on the door of the aid organization, demanding to see the child. While Adams and her staff patiently denied the existence of the devil baby, they used the story to begin conversations with their visitors, gently broaching the subject of monsters they might be facing in their own lives. The fable of the cruel husband bringing down divine punishment on his family resonated most with women who had survived domestic abuse or destitution due to their husband's struggles with addiction. While women were the primary sources of the devil baby tale, groups of men sometimes stopped by as well. Jane Addams believed they came for similar reasons to the women, reminding themselves of the dangers of straying from the right path. 
As she wrote in the Atlantic magazine in 1916, numbers of men came by themselves. One group from a neighboring factor on their own time offered to pay 25 cents, a half dollar, two dollars apiece to see the child, insisting that it must be at Hull House because the women folks had seen it. To my query as to whether they supposed we would exhibit for money a poor little deformed baby, if one had been born in the neighborhood, they replied, sure, why not? And it teaches a good lesson too, they added as an afterthought, or perhaps as a concession to the strange moral standards of a place like Hull House. The use of the urban legend as a vehicle for therapeutic technique was typical for Jane Addams. She was a pioneer when it came to her priority to listen to the poor and abused instead of condescending to them, providing resources to build self-determined communities that persist to this day. It is these people-first principles that became the basis for her work as the first woman president of the National Conference of Social Work and as a supporter of the founding of the NAACP and the ACLU. Many haunted places are visually ominous and inherently tragic, derelict, abandoned, the sites of horrific murders or tragic suicides. Hull House is none of those things. While it appears on several Chicago ghost tours, the building is now affiliated with the University of Illinois Chicago, a museum to the legacy of Jane Addams and her work at Hull House. It's a legacy that should be celebrated. The advocacy and services at Hull House led to public policy changes on a state and national scale when it comes to public health, education, fair labor practices, and children and immigrants' rights. Jane Addams herself was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1931. Addams was a true innovator when it came to helping the living, but even she couldn't help the dead. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. For more information on Jane Addams Hull House, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Jane Addams Papers Project extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Matten, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Rache. With writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>